Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. It is such an exciting show that we have for you today because first of all, we have um, the wonderful Arun Pai with us from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. And um, I will let him share his good news. How about that? But first, let me set the context for you, everybody. Inflation and U.S. elections in November are the two biggest drivers of global markets this year, according to traders surveyed by J.P. Morgan. So inflation and the U.S. elections have basically dethroned fears of recession in the U.S. That's moved to number three fear amongst traders that J.P. Morgan spoke with. How will a Biden triumph or a Trump win impact markets? Will volatility ultimately be the trading challenge to manage for 2024? Meanwhile, with AI and energy becoming the new power couple, generative AI has been driving such a surge in energy demand. How can an investor make an informed decision? If you're looking at investments in energy sources um, and thinking about how, as a globe, we're trying to ensure adequate supplies to meet energy needs of the future? What are some possible entry points worth considering? Meanwhile, fiery proverbs have been flying in China and the man in the top job of market watchdog has been replaced. All part of attempts to stop the route that we've been seeing in terms of people pulling out of Chinese markets, right? China's taken aim at what it calls malicious short selling. And remember, it was just last month when China also announced steps to boost liquidity. A Wu Qing, a former chairman of the Shanghai Stock Exchange will replace Yi Huiman as chairman and Communist Party chief of the China Securities Regulatory Commission. All in all, will the measures make a meaningful difference to China's stock markets? Let's find out what market watchers think. Arun Pai from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. First up, Arun, are you a change man today? Good morning, Michelle. Yeah, the, the change happened yet again for the second time, I would say, uh, as of Tuesday last week. Uh, Arun Pai is a new dad again. Congratulations <laughs> from Thank all you of very us much. to you and your beautiful <laughs> wife and uh, the growing family. All right, let's start with U.S. elections. Is it too premature um, to, to really discuss whether markets have priced in a Trump win or a, a Biden win? Have we learned from the, the shock, I think, in 2016 with a Trump win? Yeah, you're absolutely right, right? I mean, if you go back uh, eight years, give or take, when Trump was, uh, he, he won the, the elections, the markets on a pre-market basis, I think it went down like more than 5%. And uh, circuit breakers had to stop the bleed. But when eventually the markets opened the next day, the markets actually rallied. So it, there was a massive fear of the unknown. And, and the one thing that financial markets just hate is uh, it's just a fear, right? Of not knowing what this new person's going to come and say, uh, what are going to be the policies, etc. I think what we saw back then was obviously a huge shock to the market. This time around, we don't have that unknown, right? We kind of know. Trump's playbook. We know what he's going to saying is one thing, doing is another. And a lot of his policies that actually came out have been carried over by the Biden administration. Uh, the whole anti-China rhetoric, if anything, Biden took advantage of that, saw that that's kind of garnering him votes and uh, doubled down on it. 
Uh, Trump has now come out, obviously the showman that he is, he has to come out and say something even grandier and came out saying that, oh, he's going to potentially put an import tax of like 60% on Chinese goods. Right. A lot of rhetoric, a lot of uh, showmanship. But I think from a financial market perspective, either one that wins, it's a known enemy. And hence, I really don't think there's going to be a big market reaction one way or the other. Mm. He tried to take credit for the stock market doing well as he was leaving the office, didn't he? (laughs) Remember that? And then I think Biden put up another little meme saying uh, he referenced that from the past. And I think the S&P just went and hit all-time record highs, or give or take, yesterday. Uh, and he took a screenshot of that and said, oh, good job, uh, Donald, or something like that. But, look, to your specific question, I mean, if you go back in, even further uh, back in history, mm. right, mm. Uh, on a historical like regression analysis basis, which is just basically a fancy statistician way of saying looking at the correlation of the stock market three months after the election vis-a-vis what the election outcome was. There is no statistical difference to market performance versus who came into power. And they've done, obviously, you know, financial markets with a whole bunch of uh, math people involved. They did the same analysis for like midterm elections, uh, did the same analysis for if the House is on one party, Senate is in the other, uh, you know, so like a divided Congress, etc. None of those really made a statistical difference. Maybe for like a short, like a, you know, six hours or whatever it might have been the case for uh, Trump's election. Mm-hmm. But excluding that one black swan event, mm. there was really no difference. The difference came in where you talk about either growth or inflation or like the more pertinent macroeconomic trends that will affect the underlying performance of a business. And that is when things get really tricky. And I think that is the big issue that the markets are really trying to understand and decide for right now with the Fed now coming in and uh, throwing a little bit of a dampener in the party, uh, saying that rates are going to stay higher for longer because they see no reason why to reduce rates at this point of time uh, and all that other rhetoric that uh, the Fed chairman has been coming out and saying. That coupled with how growth is potentially doing quite well right now, but how that's relatively stalling. That's going to be another big concern in the market. Inflation, obviously, is another one. And seeing how all of that percolates down to individual business performance. I'll give you another example. Uh, Snap came out with its earnings a couple of days back. I think it was down like 30%. Facebook, relatively in the same sphere, you might call it obviously Facebook being a lot bigger, they came out with their earnings. It was the largest market cap in absolute terms, increase for any company ever, right? It went up like 20%, give or take, which roughly like $200 billion, the largest ever. You're starting to see this interesting dichotomy between actual performance of businesses being reflected in their share price. Google came out with uh, not so great earnings, share price collapsed a bit. Uh, Amazon, Apple came, Amazon especially uh, came out with better earnings, share price popped up, as well as Microsoft did better than expectations. So so I I think this market is not just a pure trend following market anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not just a, okay, I think this sector is hot, let me get into it, other than AI. (laughs) But excluding that, I think it's actually coming down to the underlying performance of the business and the market will reward the underlying companies that are performing well, and they will completely yank their uh, money out of companies that are not doing well. 
So the bigger issue is the macroeconomic forces, uh, less so the uh, Trump's trades, so to speak, you know, trying to predict the equity markets, winners or losers, depending on, on, you know, who comes into power. It's the the macro forces that markets are more worried about at this point. Is Is that basically what you're saying? Absolutely. But just drilling down a little bit further, how each company reacts and manages those macroeconomic trends, and hence it's becoming more of an individual stock picker game rather than what we saw in the past eight, 10 years with these uh, wonky zero interest rate environments, crash, uh, cash is basically just sloshing around freely everywhere. It was a lot easier to just either follow the trend or go where the momentum is. I think that paradigm of how people have made money in the last 10 years is now out the window. It's all about how companies are navigating these treacherous macroeconomic conditions and how each individual business is performing better or worse. All right, got it. Let's switch gears now and take a look at the AI boom. We've been talking quite a bit about how to play this, uh, whether looking at NVIDIA or AMD or Google or TSMC. But perhaps a different perspective today. The operators to look at the hyperscale data centers, cloud services operated by giants like Amazon and Microsoft. So if electricity demand is expected to surge with... um, you know, government's trying to figure out how we're going to provide for a sustainable future and consumer demand as well. All that interest in EV cars and AI requiring electricity to power those data centers. What are some interesting entry points, do you think, for an investor looking at the AI and electricity boom? Yeah, so I think like my view on this is it might not be very ESG friendly, I guess, okay. but... I genuinely feel taking a more traditional route, which is uh, examining uh, the oil majors, for example, they were decimated, right? If you think about the last like three, five years with all of this ESG craze that was going around in the market, a lot of these large funds, because of their ESG mandate or requirement by the market, they took money out of verticals uh, or industry verticals like that and we're putting money into more of the renewable space. What we've seen, I think, pan out, and, and we've seen a big marked shift of that in the last like three, six months, where now mentioning ESG is kind of to some extent even looked down upon potentially, and a lot of money has come out of that uh, whole theme, that thematic way of investing. That's left a big gap still, I feel, in, and there's a lot of value, I feel, in a lot of these oil majors they're making money hand over foot right now in this space. Mm. Uh, if we see what uh, OPEC has basically done, which is restrict the amount of oil that they are producing, that's led to a, a big tailwind for oil domestic manufacturing in the U.S., production in the U.S. And now, like, the U.S. is basically the global leader in terms of amount of oil produced. So there's a lot of interesting, at these prices of oil, now obviously oil is a very volatile commodity and I fully appreciate that, but gazing into my crystal ball, I guess, for the next couple of years, it does seem like tailwinds are there, as you mentioned, electricity usage, especially on the back of generative AI, and just generally the technification of the world that's occurring is going to require even more electricity. So you have that genuine demand growth uh, that the world is seeing. At the same time, OPEC kind of has its hands tied behind its back and they have to restrict 
output from their side, thereby enabling oil majors and other producing companies in the U.S. to take advantage of this. And we've seen, uh, at least my personal thesis is, that these stocks have been heavily undervalued because, as I was saying, that capital was not being deployed over there, leading to some very interesting areas over to deploy capital over there. Very interesting. Uh, so that, that's like one, if a person is willing to go down the more quote-unquote traditional route, not being as concerned about ESG metrics necessarily, and is purely looking at this as a means of making financial returns, I think there's an avenue over there. I think for the more stable dividend investors or listening, listeners to your show, uh, utility companies are always uh, an avenue to deploy capital in. These businesses typically are monopolies or duopolies in countries or uh, states, in, if you talk about the U.S. Reason being, these businesses need to deploy huge amounts of capital expenditure uh, to set up the infrastructure, which they will never be willing to do unless the government allows them uh, free reign, quote-unquote, for like 15, 20, 25 years, while obviously ensuring that they can't price gouge uh, the end consumer. So if you look at more from a dividend play, from a more st uh, stability perspective, not wanting too much volatility, uh, utility companies would be another area. And thirdly is uh, the renewable space. Uh, within that, I think the market has evolved and developed substantially over the past, uh, let's call it 15, 20 years, give or take, especially with solar being uh, at the forefront of it. I think I was seeing an interesting statistic. The amount of uh, solar panels and hence uh, gigawatt hours that can be produced in China just in the span of the last year, in 2023, is more than every other country in the world since inception, right? Wow. So just imagine that. Just last year, China has manufactured, produced more solar panels that can output more electricity based on utilizing solar energy than the entire globe since inception. So they, they're obviously at the absolute forefront of Absolute this, right? leaders, yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazing to see. From a personal portfolio perspective, though, coming back to uranium, uh, it's something that I've mm. been uh, talking a lot about on your show for over a year and a half, give or take. I do feel the reemergence of nuclear is inevitable. I think uh, just purely in terms of the productivity and efficiency that can be generated using uh, nuclear technology. We're seeing a lot of companies in the startup space in the U.S. coming up with these micro micro-nuclear reactors. Given what's happening geopolitically, Europe, I think, will have no choice eventually but to go down the nuclear route, all of which consumes uranium. Hence, rather than trying to figure out which company will win out the government tenders, go to the source, uh, all of which is uranium, uh, and you can buy uh, the ETF uh, that directly correlates to the underlying uh, commodity price. And that's been doing phenomenally well for the past uh, about a year or two years already. Mm, what do you think of uranium miners? I spoke with one recently uh, uh, looking at production in Niger, for example. When it comes to production, it becomes a little bit more complicated. And, and the reason for that, I feel, is it's, a, it's literally a commoditized good, right? It's just uranium. So if I'm a person with the technical know-how of trying to mine this uh, metal, this material, I raise capital and I go about trying to do that myself. It, it leads to a lot of people coming into the space. 
if you go back like 15, 20 years, we saw the same thing in solar too, where everyone knew that, okay, solar technologies, uh, the productivity enhancement is occurring. Uh, a lot of governments and individuals and companies are caring about this, uh, the whole ESG aspect of business. So, okay, let's go into solar. Mm-hmm. What ended up happening is a way too much supply uh, came online of people trying to uh, create solar panels. And that led to a huge collapse in the underlying, uh, into the business. Now, obviously, solar is a bit different because you can't monetize, uh, you know, solar rays. Uranium is very different that way because it is uh, relatively finite, that it is quite complicated and difficult to extract. I would rather take the play of, uh, not to mention that miners can't make money. I think they can. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very difficult to gauge which one at what scale can win out in That's the long it. run. Yeah. I'd rather go for the underlying good. High risk, but it could be a big pop. All right, let's take a look at the China market now. Chinese stocks staged their biggest rally in years this week. The sovereign, uh, the country's sovereign wealth fund said it would step up the buying of shares. Officials are scrambling to try to hold back a three-year market route. The Shanghai Composite ended up 3.2% Tuesday, ending a six-day losing streak. That is its biggest daily increase since March 2022. From what you've seen of what China's been trying to do to prop up its stock market, do you think that these measures will make a dent? I certainly hope so, Michelle. You know, <laughs> I, I, I talked about uranium as a winner <laughs> in your last question. I got to highlight my own loser, Alibaba, <laughs> for this question. So I, I got to keep myself as fair to, my, to your listeners as possible. Love right? the transparency. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it, it's been really difficult. I think one big issue has been they've tried to take more of a whack-a-mole approach, which just basically means, you know, an issue pops up over there, they'll try and solve that problem. Another issue pops up somewhere else, they'll try and whack that problem. They've not solved the underlying core issues of the market. And I think one of the biggest ones is property, right? The largest segment of the GDP, uh, largest wealth creation or destruction. We've seen this play out in the past. Right, literally like 15, 17 years ago. Until that problem has not truly been fixed, and I feel, take the playbook of the US, it's worked so well, Europe did not execute on it, uh, so hence it's still like floundering about a little bit. Set up a massive bad bank, clean up the balance sheets, force everyone's haircuts to take place right now, and just uh, rip the band-aid off, right? I think once there's clarity in that, even though there's going to be a a very excruciating short-term pain, once there's clarity and the dust kind of starts settling using this bazooka move, I think there will be a lot more confidence in the market. Because at the end of the day, look, China is the second largest economy by a long shot. Some amazing people, some amazing businesses being created. A lot of amazing profits are there to be made in this economy. I think that issue has to be resolved. The second big issue, and I don't know how this is going to pan out, so I think this is something that I am taking a look at with a bated breath, is the relationship between uh, President Xi and, uh, based on odds at least, uh, when Trump gets back into power. How will that dynamic take place? Trump, knowing fully well that this is going to be his second and last term, would he try and uh, you know pull out an ace from the hole and uh, see whether uh, things can be made up with China, but in the favor, in advantage of the U.S.? And will China then agree to that, saying that, look, uh, given what's been happening, these geopolitical tensions in the past, like, eight, ten years, has truly 
not destroyed the economy, that would be a strong word to use, but has definitely slowed down the economy to a very large extent. Does it just make sense to play ball with this guy, agree to a certain amount of concessions, and uh, let's at least get our growth back on track? And if we start seeing that dynamic pan out, and I'm not saying that it will, but I'm, I'm hoping that it will, if we see that dynamic pan out, which I don't think the markets have accounted for, everyone's thinking that Trump is going to take a much more aggressive stance toward China, and that's going to be the end-all, be-all. Trump, at the end of the day, is a business person, right? He's a business person first, politician second. If he feels that a good amount of profit can be made dealing with China properly, and this is his last term, so he doesn't need to care necessarily about uh, winning the popular vote, this could be quite a wild card for the market. And that could bore quite well for China and us sitting in Singapore, uh, sitting in the middle of uh, uh, these two uh, gorillas. If you look at what history has had to say about some of these moves, um, the past two sackings of the chiefs, you know, the Communist Party chief of China's securities, have seen equity rallies. The CSI 300 index rose almost 40% in almost a two-year span back in 2016 when we saw Li Shuyi replace Xiao Gang at the time. And then the gauge jumped more than 80% over two years after Liu himself was ousted for Yi in 2019. And uh, in news this morning, we're learning about Wu Qing, former chairman of the Shanghai Stock Exchange, replacing the uh, Yi Huiman, chairman and Communist Party chief. So, what do you think of China replacing the head of its market watchdog? What were, what were your initial reactions? I think it's par uh, for the course, to be completely honest. I, I, I don't. I, I think it was more of just correlation rather than causality. I see. Which basically means that oh, because this uh, the the head of a certain exchange has been shifted over, that suddenly has led to a huge spike up in the markets. I think if you go back in in those specific time instances. There were certain underlying macroeconomic and business trends, COVID, a huge amount of capital getting deployed globally, the whole tech rally that happened the time before that. I think there were underlying business reasons that led to the stock market rallying rather than just a personnel change. The hope, though, is given that this is, uh, you know, all decisions in China are basically uh, committed by the center, I would like to think that they're actually taking a look at the markets a lot more carefully right now mm. as compared to just, okay, I do not like gaming, so I'm just going to come up with these rules and regulations that will destroy Tencent. I, I think from a family perspective, the amount of time being spent on tuition is disruptive to the family fabric, and hence I'm just going to outlaw the entire sector. You, it's too, the, the, the country is too big and even though it has closed borders to a large extent for its currency, there's just too much money sloshing around from external, from international counterparts or the government to willy-nilly just make unilateral decisions. And I think from that perspective, the personal change might mean that they're a little bit more actively involved. And hence, that could board well for the future rules that the government comes out with. But I think until that point of time, until we actually see some of these concrete measures that the government is undertaking, I, it's still going to be a little bit of a wait and see for me at least. Wait and see. So it doesn't sound like you're despairing yet. 
No, <laughs> definitely not that <laughs> negative. But I, I, I need my Alibaba stock to go back up to one fifty, <laughs> Michelle. <laughs> we'll share we'll share that on with you for sure. I'm sure many of our listeners have the same sentiment. Arun, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks as always for having me, Michelle. He's Arun Pai from the investments team at Monks Ill Ventures. This is Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Before acting on the information on Money FM. Please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.